This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. It's a great honor to be here to uh, introduce Dr. Dimsdale and to participate in the Holocaust Living History Workshop. It's traditional in giving introductions to go through, in effect, a narrativized CV for our speaker, to say that he was an undergraduate at Carleton College, to say that he did his medical education at Stanford, to say that he worked and taught at Harvard before joining the faculty here at UC San Diego. But I want to take this occasion to say a few personal things about Dr. Dimsdale as a humanist as well as a physician. I had the opportunity in preparing for this introduction to look back on Dr. Dimsdale's remarkable essay of 1974 on the coping behavior of Nazi concentration camp survivors, where Dr. Dimsdale, Dr. Dimsdale is looking at me like, did I write that? (laughs) As I read through it, I noticed how Joel sensitively outlines the range of strategies that concentration camp inmates used to survive. In effect, he's giving us a taxonomy of coping strategies, and he offers up not simply an historical account, but really ways of understanding stress in all its forms, in its most severe forms. And in the decades since this study was first published, we've all seen the spectrum of modern world varieties of trauma which we may barely have imagined before. And what I'm trying to suggest is that in this publication, as well as in many other of Dr. Dimsdale's publications, we see not simply case studies or clinical accounts, but really guides for behavior and understanding who we are. Joel is a physician, in my mind, with a deeply humanist sensibility. His case studies are more than narratives and interpretations. They look for signs and symbols. He is, in many ways, a great reader, a reader not just of people, but of their stories, their language, and their patterns of action. And I've come to know Joel not just as a reader, but as a great and generous friend of the Division of Arts and Humanities, and an understanding of how close his own skills of interpretation are to what we do in the division. Little wonder, then, that Joel has turned most recently to another art of interpretation, reaching back, then, to that most uninterpretable of traumas. His talk today is called Anatomy of Malice, Rorschach Results from Nuremberg War Criminals. The ink blot is a classic case of an interpretable sign, something apparently without intention or agency, something whose meaning lies solely in the mind of the person who sees it. How can we understand the machinery of evil? What is the place of individuals in the bureaucracy of extermination? Rather than coming at these questions through philosophical speculations such as those of Hannah Arendt or the archival historicism of someone like Lucy Davidovich, Joel comes at them through the discipline of psychoanalysis. My understanding is that this spring, the Holocaust Living History Workshop continues its, quote, long shadow of the past series. And I can think of no better way to lead off this new term than with Joel's presentation on those inkblot shadows that may reveal for us 
something of the past, but also a hope for our future. Joel, it's an honor and a great pleasure. Thank you very much, Seth. Uh, uh, it's a very kind introduction. I should also add that um, Dean Lair is one of my professors right now. I have the fortune of taking one of his classes to, uh, in an effort to, to deepen my understanding and ability to, to read and understand. Uh, I'd also like to thank uh, 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 librarian uh, Brian Schottlander, who is the steward of this extraordinary institution. The UCSD's Geisel Library has an enormously rich collections, and these collections have helped my work a great deal. Research addresses enduring questions, and sometimes these questions straddle and must straddle medicine, history, and our ideas of the nature of the world. This presentation will focus on such questions in one historical context. The Nazi hierarchy was responsible for an unbelievable amount of carnage and could be considered to embody the essence of malice. What drove them? I will discuss this in the context of two investigators' explorations of the Nuremberg war criminals with Rorschach testing. In addition to many scholarly sources, I will rely on insights from Faulkner, Peter Townsend, Dostoevsky, as well as diverse diaries, news stories, and interviews. Peter Townsend and The Who stated the problem lyrically. What is it like to be evil? Who were these people? No one knows what it's like to be the bad man, to be the sad man behind blue eyes. No one knows what it's like to be hated, to be fated, to telling only lies. But my dreams, they aren't as empty as my conscience seems to be. How could the war criminals do what they did? Were they suffering from a psychiatric disorder? Were they criminally insane? Were they psychopaths, sadists, delusional? What do we as psychiatrists think? Now, by way of an outline, I'd like to start with a brief discussion of the geographical terrain that shapes this talk. Then I'd like to go back to 1920 and the origins of the Rorschach test. I will then move forward 20 years to review the Nazi genocide, the war crimes trial, and in the aftermath, the extraordinary story of the sequestration of the Nuremberg Rorschachs. And I do mean that term quite literally. I should add that this is not a critique or a defense of Rorschach testing. Instead, it is a discussion of how these tests were employed, what happened to the people who administered the tests, and how we try to make sense of this 70 years later. 
maps are one of my hobbies, and the dots on this map of the world approximate locations that influenced my studies in this area. Hirschau, Switzerland, where Rorschach worked, Nuremberg, site of the war crimes trial, Berkeley, where one of the protagonists settled after the war, Sioux City, Iowa, my hometown where I grew up, many concentration camp survivors settled in that town. And I learned there that the shadow of the past uh, is very long indeed and stretches out over the vastness of the plains. Faulkner said the past is not dead, the past is not even past. Palo Alto, where I became acquainted with the enormous archives of the Hoover Institute of War, Revolution, and Peace. Jerusalem, where I did my work studying concentration camp survivors and coping. And Boston, where I was sitting in my office, and one day, totally unannounced, the Nuremberg executioner came to see me knocked on my door, carrying what looked like a gun case, and said, I am the executioner. This was stressful. <laughs> uh, he opened up the gun case, and it was, it was filled with his discharge papers, uh, uh, proving that he was who he said he was, etc. We had a little chat, and he told me that what we really need was people to start studying the Nazi swine, in his work, words. And finally, Gainesville, Florida, where at a dinner party I met accidentally um, one of the heroes uh, of this uh, story, uh, Molly Harrower. So the inquiry properly begins in 1920 with Hermann Rorschach. He's a Brad Pitt look-alike. Um, uh, he was, uh, even in his youth, he was interested in the, the area of commonality between art and medicine, and he agonized personally over what he would do in his life direction. He ultimately went into medicine, uh, became very prominent in Swiss psychoanalytic inst uh, uh, circles, and moved to Hirschau, Switzerland. He, um, he wrote his classic work on the Rorschach inkblatt and couldn't get it published. It kept getting rejected over and over, and it was only accepted one year before he died. He died tragically as a very, uh, as a very young man. Now, it turns out that not many people understand Rorschachs anymore. They're not used as prominently as they were in the 50s or even 60s. Today we get most of our ideas about the Rorschach from old movies, and a lot of those ideas are, are not particularly accurate. So what is the test? Uh, there are 10 cards, this is one of the cards, and it is an ultimate projective test. The tester asks the subject two questions on each of the cards. What might this be? 
And the next question really is, what made you say that? Point out what you saw that could account for that uh, answer. So it's a projective test. It's also a perceptual test. Uh, It was used particularly before days of contemporary neural imaging. It was a way of characterizing how thinking is organized. You may think that the investigator is only listening to what you say. That's not quite correct. Because a real Rorschach expert is interested in what you're responding to on the blot, how the form is, whether you're responding to the shading, whether you're responding to the color. He or she is also looking at your interactions with the tester, whether you're responding to the gestalt or detail, and also your response time. So it is a quite complicated test, more complicated than you would get than you would assume from, uh, from the movies. Before discussing the war crimes trial, it is helpful to review the scope of the Nazi genocide and some of its uh, unique characteristics. There were many targets, but principally and abidingly, the targets were Jews. The genocide involved a concentration and deportation to thousands of camps. The dots on this map are not just towns in Germany, but virtually every dot is a location of one of the concentration camps. And the camps varied enormously in terms of levels of lethality and also for different classes of of prisoners. The Nazi genocide was characterized by deception and massive bureaucratization. By the end of the war, 75% of the survivors were in fact the sole survivors of their family. The concentration camps somehow convey a peculiar sense of familiarity. The noted critic George Steiner said, The concentration camps are the transference of hell from below the earth to its surface. Anyone who spends time studying in these dark places must be prepared for an inner resonance of great discomfort. The camp embodies often down to minutia, the images and chronicles of hell in European art and thought. Please remember Steiner's comment that those who study in these dark places must be prepared for resonance because it will become eerily relevant as we go on. Contemporary historians are grappling with how to portray the human scale of this genocide. A previous speaker in this series spoke of some of the newer ways of envisioning loss. This is a pixelated image where every pixel represents one of the 100,000 Dutch Jews killed in the war. Uh, And if you put your mouse over one of the pixels and it lingers on one of the spots, it grows and displays that individual's name and fate. And as, as you can see, I've portrayed that in the slide. 
One looks at such arrays and wonders. One wonders about the killers. Who were they? How could they? After the war ended, there were multiple war crimes trials, eventually involving thousands of defendants. But Nuremberg was the trial, the first trial, involving the highest-ranking Nazi party and cabinet ministers that could be found. The assumption is that these guys were depraved monsters, psychopaths, but what does that mean? How do you prove it? In fact, it was a very heterogeneous group of high-ranking defendants. Hess was occasionally paranoid and frequently claimed amnesia. Stryker's pornographic racist theories were so objectionable that the Nazis themselves confined him to house arrest for the last years of the war. In fact, many of the defendants loathed each other. Psychiatrist Douglas Kelly and psychologist Gustav Gilbert were minor functionaries at Nuremberg, but are our major protagonists concerning the Rorschach testing. They had multiple roles, some official and some unofficial. They were to determine fitness for trial. They were to maintain prisoners' morale so that they could cooperate with the trial. They were advisors to the prosecution. But they also had their own inner agendas as well. Kelly and Gilbert were interested in investigating the psychopathology of Nazi leaders, and they also were interested in pursuing their own ambitions. I have to say, this was a very difficult collaboration. And when you read the diaries, the lawsuits, everything that has gone on, this was a collaboration from hell. Uh, I'll focus on Gilbert and Kelly's interactions with four of the defendants. We don't have time to, to go beyond that. Hess, Goering, Ley, and Streicher. A recent BBC docudrama on Nuremberg actually includes some scenes portraying the complex interactions of Gilbert and Kelly. There was a great deal of stake with the war crimes trials, and one senses the pressures that Kelly and Gilbert faced. I'll be showing you two brief film clips because they do an excellent job of setting the context. The first clip shows psychiatrist Kelly interacting with prosecutor Robert Jackson and discussing the use of Rorschachs in trying to figure out what was going on with Hess. Hess was particularly troubling because he claimed amnesia, didn't recall much of the war, didn't even recognize his own wife. He wanted to do something to compensate for this relative inactivity which was forced upon him. With the trial approaching, the chief allied prosecutor, Justice Robert Jackson, needed reliable psychological reports to press ahead with the case. 
One of the men who was given the task of proving that Hess was fit to stand trial was prison psychiatrist Major Douglas Kelly. The prosecution had to show that he really was not insane. Well, trying to prove that people are faking is very difficult. And the Allies went through extraordinary uh, steps to try to show that Hess was perfectly all right. Ah. Dr. Kelly. Sir. Carl? Uh, coffee? Thank you. Please. So, is he uh, fit to stand trial or not? I'd like to perform a few tests before submitting a professional opinion, if I may. What kind of tests are we talking about? The Rorschach test. It's the most useful single technique in mental examination. The armed forces are using it more and more. Isn't that that ink blot thing? We give the patient ten large cards to look at. Each one has an ink stain, an abstract pattern. We get the patient to talk through what he thinks the patterns look like, get them to make up stories about them. That starts to give us a picture of their personality. Nothing. Oh. And this one. Where's your monster? <laughs> yes, a human monster. Yes, there's its mouth. And this is its eyes, these, these red parts. It could be a negro with a big mouth and red lips and red eyes. The prison authorities were very concerned about suicide and with reason. Imagine being the psychiatrist or psychologist responsible for these defendants. Again, imagine the pressures they were under. This clip shows a warden of Nuremberg, Warden Andrus, discussing suicide risk with Gustav Gilbert and Douglas Kelly. Was that not all of the Nazi leaders were in jail? In Lüneburg lies the body of the most hated man in Europe, Heinrich Himmler, chief of the Nazi secret police and the savage SS troops. Himmler was carrying tiny vials of poison. The suicide of Himmler creator of the Nazi death camps, was a disaster for the Allies. With Hitler and Goebbels already dead, Goering was the most senior Nazi left. Let me show you something. Apart from an armed assault on a prison, this is what keeps me awake at night. We found it amongst Goering's jewelry. It's a cartridge. German caliber. Sure. But you can open it. Carefully. Potassium cyanide. There's enough there to kill a dozen men. Regular issue SS suicide ampule. Emily used one. Was Goering suicidal? Let me tell you about Goering. When he came to us, he was a simpering slob with two suitcases full of paracodine. I thought he was a drug salesman. He's addicted to drugs. Sure. His habit traces way back when he was wounded in a Nazi fight. He took drugs for the pain. If 
you think fat stuff is a big guy, you should have seen him before we put him on a diet. Our job, Captain, is to ensure these men are healthy enough to stand trial before the world. And I do not want them to become Sturbucks. The guy could go nuts sitting in a little cell with what some of these boys have got on their minds. I want you to be our eyes and ears, Captain. Get to know the prisoners. Report back to me regularly on their mental states, especially Goering. If we lose him, we don't have a trial. Nothing must happen to Goering. Yes, sir. Before the trial, Robert Ley, creator of the Nazi leisure organization Strength Through Joy, committed suicide. I have been one of the responsible men. We have forsaken God, and therefore, we were forsaken by God. This must never That second film clip portrays the aftermath of Ley's suicide. Ley suppressed the labor unions, authorized numerous war crimes. He had a history of multiple head injuries and episodes of unconsciousness. He was a plane crash survivor with a persistent stammer and was an alcoholic. Kelly submits his evaluation on Ley in October 1945 and one can recognize the familiar cadence of a psychiatric examination. Normal psychomotor reactions and normal attitudes and behavior. Mood is normal, but affect is extremely labile. Rorschach examination reveals emotional instability manifested by color and shading responses and evidence of frontal lobe damage. He is one of the most potentially suicidal prisoners Due, his, due to his extreme instability, secondary to his old head injury. Lay is competent. Lay hung himself shortly afterwards, and Kelly writes sardonically in 1946, since Lay kindly made his brain available for post-mortem examination, we were presented with a rare chance to verify our clinical and Rorschach findings. There was a great deal of popular interest in the idea of finding the lesion in the war criminals' brains. The race was on to prove that these were evil, brain-damaged, Frankenstein-like monsters. The Sarasota Herald Tribune, uh, you can see the article here, quoted Major General Turk, Surgeon General of the Army, as saying these changes were sufficient to account for the unusual behavior of Lay. Not to be outdone, Life magazine ran a story showing the famous uh, neuropathologist Major Webb Haymaker 
of the U.S. Army Institute of Pathology, dissecting Lay's brain. He reported long-standing degenerative processes in the frontal lobes consistent with chronic encephalopathy. But I'd like to move on to discuss Goering and his interactions with Gilbert and Kelly. Goering arrives in prison with 49 suitcases and loads of jewelry, notably large rings, and with all of Germany's paracodine supply. (laughs) He was charming, confident, dominated all of the other prisoners, profoundly cynical man. The people can always be brought to do the bidding of the rulers. That's easy. All you have to do is to tell them that they are being attacked and denounce the pacifists for lack of patriotism and exposing the country to danger. It works the same in any country. Goering uh, committed suicide two hours before he was to be hung. Uh, He uh, ingested cyanide, and no one knows to this date where he got the cyanide from. There have been some recent uh, work on that, but I'm not sure it's definitive. Kelly spent considerable time with Goering, and one starts to get a glimpse of Kelly as an astute, pragmatic clinician. Goering started complaining of withdrawal symptoms from the pericoding. Kelly writes, Goering was very proud. I suggested to him that while weaker men like Ribbentrop, whom he loathed, would perhaps require doses of medicine should they ever be withdrawn from a drug habit, he, Goering, being strong and forceful, would require nothing. Goering agreed and cooperated wholeheartedly. Goering weighed 280 pounds on capture, and Kelly was worried about his heart and appealed to Goering's narcissism. When I pointed out that he would make a better appearance in court should he lose some weight, he agreed and lost 60 pounds. Rudolf Hess was one of the other major defendants. He complained of amnesia and numerous somatic ailments. He was intermittently suspicious and saved samples of his food to prove he was being poisoned. Seen here is a photo of his blotting paper on which he soaked peach preserves, which he saved as evidence proving that it contained brain poison and corrosive acid. Once he asks Gilbert to sample one of his poisoned crackers before agreeing to talk with him further. Gilbert and Kelly agreed on the call on Hess. They, they agreed, they both describe him similarly as preoccupied, withdrawn, and suspicious. Let's meet the people who administered the Rorschachs. Psychiatrist Douglas Kelly was one of the California Terman geniuses. He was the top he was in the top half percent of IQ in the state of California. And the Terman study followed these people for decades. And here the Terman investigators are sitting with Kelly and his family in a follow-up interview. Uh, Kelly was a Columbia graduate, an expert in forensic psychiatry, personality, and the Rorschach. 
Kelly's relationship with Goering was intense and close. Quote, Goering was one of the easiest to get along with. Each day when I came to his cell, he would jump up from his chair, greet me with a smile and outstretched hand, escort me to his cot, and pat its middle with his great paw. Good morning, doctor. I'm so glad you've come to see me. Please sit down, doctor. Sit here. Then he would ease his own great body down beside me, ready to answer my questions. He was charming when he chose to be charming, excellent intelligence, keen imagination, great drive and sense of humor. Kelly spent hours discussing politics, war, and the trial with Goering. And in turn, Goering regarded Kelly as a well-connected fixer. Kelly agrees to intercede with Wild Bill Donovan, the soon-to-be director of the CIA, on Goering's behalf and to personally deliver letters to Goering's wife. Goering writes his wife, Today I can send you a letter direct. Major Kelly, the doctor who is treating me and who has my fullest confidence, is bringing it to you. You can talk to him freely. Goering offers Kelly one of his enormous rings in thanks. Kelly refuses, and then Goering responds, then I'll give you something even better and more valuable, a signed photograph of me. (laughs) Our other protagonist is Gustav Gilbert. Gilbert was an American psychologist from an Austrian Jewish family. You get the sense that Kelly is looking at people very pragmatically with a certain sense of sardonic remove. Gilbert, one senses much more personal feelings of hatred for the Nazis. Kelly was just trying to get them on trial and was intellectually curious about them, regarding them as specimens, so to speak. However, Gilbert loathed them and urgently wanted to understand their psychology. He was also a Columbia graduate, although they didn't know each other apparently, and he had particular expertise in social psychology, but had no expertise whatsoever with Rorschachs. The following interchange between Gilbert and Stryker gives a sense of Gilbert's feelings. Gilbert to Stryker. Why did you have to print all that sexual filth about the Jews? Stryker. Why, it's all in the Talmud. The Jews are a circumcised race. Didn't Joseph commit race pollution with Pharaoh's daughter. The judges are crucifying me now. I can tell. Three of the judges are Jews. Gilbert, how can you tell? Stryker, I can recognize blood. Three of them get uncomfortable when I look at them. I can tell. I've been studying race for 20 years. Gilbert writes in his diary, a quarter of an hour with this perverted mind is about all one can stand at one time. And his line never varies. World Jewry and circumcision serve as the channels for projecting his own lascivious thoughts and aggressions into pornographic anti-Semitism. This has been a long preamble. I'm getting to the Rorschachs. But it's crucial that you understand the context and a bit about the two investigators 
and particularly what happens afterwards. Kelly designed the testing protocol. It was in fact never used in evidence in Nuremberg. Uh, and the criminals enjoyed the testing. They competed with each other on their IQ tests. Um, the, after the war, uh, Kelly has a, a, a meteoric uh, career. He assumes prominent editorial positions and becomes a professor of criminology at Berkeley. He concludes in his book, Nazism is a sociocultural disease. I had at Nuremberg the purest known Nazi virus cultures, 22 flasks, as it were, to study. Okay, let's look at some of the Rorschach responses. Please remember, there are 10 cards, and people will elaborate on and on about what they saw in the card. This is just an extract of responses from some of the war criminals to card number two. There's a lot to keep track of, and one senses the challenge of these data from this one minuscule sampling. So Frisch, the propaganda ministry, says, um, it's uncanny, they're just ink blots, but it shows that beauty and a deeper meaning can be concealed. You know, it's terrifying. A man wants to make an ink blot, and the ink itself makes a symbol of life. I see two dancing bears, very clear, or gnomes, or dwarfs. Makes a revolting impression, not all friendly. The bloody color makes me feel uncomfortable. Frank, the butcher of Poland. Those are my darling bears. They're holding a bottle. A beautiful prima ballerina dancing in a white dress with a red light shining from below. Speer, Hitler's architect, minister for armaments and war production, simply says a butterfly and refuses to elaborate. Goering, head of the Luftwaffe, minister of the interior, chief of the Prussian Gestapo, laughs. Those are two dancing figures, very clear, a shoulder here and a face there, clapping hands. The top red is the head and hat, the face is partly white. Hess, deputy Fuhrer, survived the bizarre flight to Scotland and complained of intermittent amnesia, says, two men talking about a crime Blood is on their minds. Now, what do these responses tell us? I'm not going to call on anyone. Uh, but it's a heterogeneous bunch of responses. And remember also, when I discussed how Rorschachs are really scored, the scoring goes much more into issues of what the person is picking out than just the, the image that the person sees. But you can see the challenge of, of this uh, testing. So I will summarize the conclusions of the Rorschach analyses, but it is not a pretty story. The aftermath of the testing 
and the mysteries surrounding this aftermath are riddles in themselves. At first glance, Kelly and Gilbert agreed in their first conclusion. They were sane as a group. But their second and third conclusions differ profoundly. Kelly says strong, dominant, aggressive, egocentric personalities like Goering's with their lack of conscience are not rare. They can be found anywhere in the country behind big desks deciding big affairs. Basically, they're ordinary people influenced by mendacity and bureaucracy, creatures of their environment. Gilbert's conclusion is very different. They were ruthlessly aggressive, had emotional insensitivity, and presented with a front of utter amiability. They were narcissistic psychopaths. But there were peculiar things going on, not just between Kelly and Goering, but also with the entire field of Rorschach testing and between Gilbert and Kelly. Uh, Kelly was particularly close to Goering. Um, Indeed, Goering weeps when Kelly leaves Nuremberg and asks Kelly to adopt his daughter, Etta, if his wife dies. Um, And there was an an enormous amount of distrust and competition between Kelly and Gilbert and a race to see who could publish first in this area. Plus, their conclusions were so different. And again, I, I think back to George Steiner's quote, that anyone who spends time studying in these dark places must be prepared for an inner resonance of great discomfort. There is something toxic that Kelly and Gilbert were exposed to. After the war, no one would touch it. There was an enormous toxic conflict between Gilbert and Kelly, and you get an odd sense of unease when you look at writings from Rorschach experts. Molly Harrower, whom we shall meet shortly, said, Remember the context of this in 1946. We espoused a concept of evil which dealt in black and white. Our concept of evil was such that it must be a tangible, scorable element in psychological tests. And what the experts were encountering was that these tests were much more subtle than that rapid assessment. Well, I'm afraid I have a shocking conclusion on Douglas Kelly. He committed suicide on New Year's Day in 1958 in front of his entire family. He was cooking a New Year's Day dinner, went to his study, came out and said, I think I have killed myself and died a minute later. His wife, son, and daughter don't know why he did it. The son added cryptically in a recent interview, I think maybe he knew he was on a runaway train. I think he knew what was inside, but he didn't know how to make it go away. 
Kelly's study was filled with chemicals, medications, and Nazi memorabilia, including letters from Goering. Quote, I regret your departure from Nuremberg, as do the comrades confined with me. I thank you for your human behavior and also for your attempt to understand our reasons. Why Kelly killed himself, whether it was an accident or suicide, is unanswerable. The one thing that struck everyone was the method. So Molly Harrower. Molly Harrower was the world's foremost Rorschach expert. She was one of the few people on good terms with both Gilbert and Kelly, and she persuaded them to share the Rorschachs with the world experts. The problem was that no one would agree to analyze the Rorschachs. Imagine in 1947, you're a Rorschach expert. I, Molly Harrower, write you, the esteemed uh, leader of Rorschach studies, and I say, would you do this as one of the ten? Everyone would be glad to do it. This is one of the most pressing questions of the day. No one agreed. Everyone suddenly had time pressures and commitments that precluded their participation in this uh, analysis and in this symposium she was planning for uh, a presentation in London. The trouble was partially that there were, there were lawsuits and squabbles about publication. Uh, Molly, somehow, she was a very uh, energetic, lovely lady. She managed to get Gilbert to agree to publish Um, his Rorschachs in her volume, but he gets impatient with the review and publication time and goes around her and simultaneously submits it to another journal. And as luck would have it, the editor of that other journal, by happenstance, picks Molly as the blind reviewer. (laughs) So so, um, there are things that are going on uh, in, in, in here that are quite complex. Uh, finally, Gilbert's Rorschachs were published in 1975, 30 years. But Molly has doubts about the analyses that Miali and Seltzer performed on the Rorschachs. Miali and Seltzer conducted a non-blinded analysis, and they concluded that these were a homogeneous group of warped psychopaths who were distinctly savage and devilish. Molly had her doubts about that because, in fact, homogeneous does not describe the Nuremberg war criminals. They were a very heterogeneous group of men. She also wondered whether the Nuremberg war criminals represent sadistic psychopaths or upper-level executives. And she wondered maybe a testing of some of the killers would be more revealing. But she said to address this, we have to have blind testing. So she again tried, this time successfully, contacted 10 Rorschach experts throughout the world, um, sent them a set of Rorschachs from the war criminals, 
from Unitarian ministers and from psychiatric patients, all blindly coded, so you wouldn't know who was who. This is a, it, her design is kind of complicated, and I'm trying to boil it down. Uh, basically, uh, each Rorschach card had a code on it. In this slide, all of the blues were war criminals, the orange were clergy, the yellow were psychiatric patients. The ones were high-functioning people, the fours were very impoverished. But again, you as the raider don't know that code. And Molly said, how would you organize these sets of Rorschachs? Which is the most sensible way of organizing them? By colors or by numbers? In other words, could you see something distinctly characteristic of the Nuremberg war criminals? None of them did. They all coded by functioning level. Uh, Molly's gave a second challenge. She says, okay, each row now corresponds to a certain group. You decide which group they belong to. Here are some possibilities. Clergy, cross-section of middle class, persons facing a death sentence, prominent civil rights leaders, superior adults in spotlight positions, etc. And even when provided this menu of possibilities for group identification, the experts could not identify the groups. The Nazis were identified as a cross-section of the middle class, superior adults in spotlight positions, members of clergy. The clergy were identified as superior adults in spotlight positions. The psychiatric patients were identified as political assassins, persons facing death sentence, members of clergy. When all is said and done, how do we understand malice? There are multiple intellectual strands, and Gilbert and Kelly correspond to two of these separate strands. Gilbert, the, this is paradoxical, Gilbert is the social psychologist who believed in psychopathology. Kelly is a psychiatrist who espouses a social psychological viewpoint. It's, it's, uh, it's interesting. Gilbert clearly believed in psychopathology, and he was influenced by Cleckley's description of the psychopathic personality. Such individuals are described as violent, manipulative, impulsive, callous, lacking empathy or remorse. Or, or remorse. Popular culture portrays two variants of psychopaths, Norman Bates in Psycho and Tony Soprano. In contemporary psychiatric terminology, such individuals are an extreme variant of antisocial personality disorder. There are even uh, uh, studies that point out that perhaps the psychopaths have a bad brain, uh, the neuropsychiatric underpinning of, of psychopaths. And some contemporary studies are using neural imaging to study the brains of psychopaths. In this study, by Lai et al., MRIs were used to compare brain cortex thinning in psychopathic prisoners and non-psychopathic prisoners. The psychopaths had thinner cortexes. This figure shows the difference in the two groups. 
the red and yellow parts of the brain denote areas of significant thinning of the psychopath's brains. It is tempting to say one can almost see the reptilian brain burning through areas of the thin cortex in the psychopaths. Well, if Gilbert believed in psychopathology and some neuropsychiatrist believed in bad brains, Kelly was swayed by a different perspective, a social psychological perspective, that we are all capable of such evil under certain circumstances. Arendt concluded in uh, her studies about banality of evil that evil happens often mindlessly without intention. Stanley Milgram, in the classic studies at Yale on shock, found that people would hurt others if told to do so by an authority figure. Darley and Latinay uh, found uh, in group settings there's a diffusion of responsibility and that people will not take the risk of looking foolish in an, eff- in an effort to help someone who appears to be in trouble. <coughs> and closer to home, of course, we have uh, Philip Zimbardo's studies at Stanford where people ad- started spontaneously adapting sadistic behaviors when put in a position of power over another. There are other traditions. A third perspective is legal. People make mistakes and must make restitution. And there are certainly variations from state to state and country to country as to how a psychiatric disorder influences judgment and sentencing. The fourth perspective is embodied in many religious beliefs to the effect that the devil is real. Indeed, Paul says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers, the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. The fifth perspective is perhaps one of the darker views, as if these are not all dark already. The Greek philosopher Bias in 6th century basically concluded most men are bad. So, we're almost done this evening. If you were the refereeing editor and you saw a paper on the Rorschachs of Nuremberg, Do you think these data are valid? It's a sample size of 21. They were very heterogeneous guys. They were in prison, in solitary confinement. Were these the right Nazis to test in the first place? And then there are some technical issues about the way the Rorschachs were administered that are a little beyond uh, us for discussion right now. So, I started out by suggesting that there are enduring questions in research. 
I've tried to summarize how the field has struggled to answer such questions with these data. I'm afraid I've, I've left you with the enduring questions as opposed to an answer. And the question, of course, pertains not just to Nuremberg, but to contemporary events. There is depravity, wickedness, and malice. They are not understood. Dostoevsky says, nothing is easier than to denounce the evildoer. Nothing is more difficult than to understand him. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.